Hi, everybody. My name's Kevin. If we haven't met, so glad you guys are here. Um, we've been in the middle of a wisdom series, and so uh, Danielle and I thought we would just end the series with a chat. Sometimes we do these every now and then, as you can tell. Sometimes they're a little bit unscripted. And um, the general idea behind the chat is to provide um, a dialogue or a conversation around some of the things that we've been conversing on, some of the things that our teachers have brought to us, and to try to either sum up, reflect, um, nuance, um, and or re-emphasize. It kind of all depends on various aspects. And so that's what we're doing. So we have concluded our wisdom series. And so those of you who've been with us, we've been, we started several weeks ago on Job and then Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when you come and you hear people teach, you walk away thinking, oh, that was really interesting and thought-provoking, and I'd like to consider that again. And then you get in the car and you drive home and you never consider it again, right? Um, so when we were thinking about the conclusion of this wisdom series, we wanted to give everybody a chance to reflect and to dialogue back with what has been taught. So we've pulled a few slides and points from over these weeks and wanted to remind us all of what we discussed as we think about the wisdom tradition in our Bible, but also wanted to give you the opportunity to really ask the question and wrestle and debate and discuss, okay? So years ago when we first started Spark, Rabbi Ari came and he did a talk for us. And then afterwards he said to me, I'm going to have to teach your people to ask questions because they're not asking questions. And I was like, great, okay, we'll teach to ask questions. Um, my daughter is learning to ask questions all the time. So if you don't yet know to ask a question or you've been taught in church that you're not to ask them, this is the church where we want you to bring all your questions. So start getting ready and you can raise your hand and interrupt as we go along, okay? Yeah, all right, we're ready. So we're gonna start with a question. Job starts with a question. Right in the middle of the book, Job asks this question. He says, where can wisdom be found? Where is the source of understanding? Now, for those of you who may not be familiar, Job is a guy who was very, very righteous and did everything right and then had a really, really bad, awful day slash week slash year, losing everything he could ever imagine. And then whether again this actually happened, this is a story that is told in our text. And in the story, the question of why do bad things happen to good people is wrestled with. And in the middle of the book, Job is asking this question, where is wisdom found? Because his friends aren't helping a lot. There's a whole bunch of mess. Where is the source of understanding? And he wrestles with that right in the middle of the book. The ultimate way that Job finds any hope here is just simply resting in the fact that he isn't God and that he won't ever know why he lost everything or what the meaning was behind it, or why God didn't stop it from happening. He'll just know that God is God and that he isn't. And we talked about how that was deeply important because a lot of times people are in scenarios or settings where you can feel like, if I do this right thing, then God will bless me. And Job did everything right. And it was actually because he was so righteous that he was targeted for losing everything. It was his righteousness that made him the target. So that idea of like, if I do good things, that will equal a blessing, right, is something that gets immediately put aside in the book of Job. And the reality is, life is absurd and doesn't make sense. And it is very possible for you to live in a world in which the constructs that you think about make sense. But every now and then, for many of us, those constructs run into reality. And that reality 
causes us to go, wait a second, maybe that thing that I kept believing in isn't so true after all. Um, we talked about absurdity in Job. Pastor Omer also mentioned absurdity when he was talking about Ecclesiastes, the myth of Sisyphus. For those of you who are tired of hearing me talk about the, the book Why Fish Don't Exist by Lulu Miller, you need to get that book in addition. Um, philosophers and theologians and regular everyday people for thousands of years have had to wrestle with this very uncomfortable truth that life is absurd. And in many ways, this question, where can wisdom be found, is a rhetorical question. It's not an actual question. It's a rhetorical Can Can any wisdom actually be found in the midst of all this absurdity? And it leaves you with this tension of maybe the answer is no, and maybe the no is the wisdom. So that was a little bit of what we talked about there. Yeah, I think that the passages that we also have in our Bible, like in Deuteronomy, where it's like, here are all the blessings. If you obey, here are all the good things that will happen to you. And if you disobey, here are all the bad things that will happen to you. We have those equations in our in our Bibles. But if we're honest, we're always wrestling with the fact that bad things happen to good people. And it also seems like the evil flourish oftentimes. So, the, so we already know that the math doesn't always add up, at least not in that way. I would say that it does add up and like if you obey God and you don't lie or steal or cheat or harm one another, your life is going to be a lot better because you're not going to have other people around you who are either really, really angry or also lying and cheating and stealing all around you, right? So there are just natural consequences to our behaviors. But we ask these questions of like, why, does, why do these bad things happen? And the book of Job is the answer of we don't know. We don't know. That's, that's the answer to the end of the book. God knows. God is God. We are not. And that's how the book of Job ends with this question, which I think is really beautiful and wonderful and important to have in our biblical text. We don't know why difficult things occur, and it's not your fault. Well, it's incredibly powerful because I'm, I'm sure many of you, all of us at some particular point, have had a horrible tragedy happen to our lives, whether it's a disease, an accident, some sort of loss and pain. And some very well-meaning religious strong believer who has all the answers came to you and said, I'm sure God meant this for a reason. And in those particular moments, you being given a reason for why things are happening is not helpful. It's very hurtful, actually, because in many ways it kind of nullifies or is again, you're, you're kind of ignoring or dismissing the amount of pain and suffering that I'm currently in right now. I need somebody to actually acknowledge that there's pain and suffering here. And as soon as you put a meaning on top of it, it's no longer suffering. Oh, it's for a particular purpose. In fact, that's one of the kind of philosophical definitions of evil. Evil is not that bad things happen. Evil is a thing that happens that has no meaning, has no no purpose to it. And so every now and then we just need that moment where, no, don't nullify my suffering by trying to put some sort of purpose on it. Don't, don't put a ring on it. It's not meaningful. It's not purposeful. <laughs> Sorry, that didn't make sense. That just came to mind. But. So our wisdom series with Job is that Job never knows why all of this has happened and we also may never know. And that a lot of our answers to life suffering are not satisfying. And that for me, I think where I find satisfaction or hope is just simply knowing that God is with me in it and that my community is with me in it, even when I can't sort out a reason through um, that I'm not alone. 
So our next book that we discovered or discussed together was the book of Psalms. And we talked about Psalms of lament and Psalms of praise and Psalms of ascent. We talked about how 78% or so, 70 plus percent of the book of Psalms are lament and how we as a people don't often lament very well because we feel like um, we're supposed to have that really quick answer like, well, things are really bad, but don't worry. I am super and abundantly blessed in spite of it all. And I know God's on the throne and everything's going to happen. And we talked about how the book of Psalms allows you to go, I don't like this and I don't like God and I'm really upset. And that's all okay. And that's part of our story too, right? So the psalmist writes from the first person. It's a really beautiful, as we read the Psalms they're going through in this beautiful poetry, it's our cries out to God. It's our worship out to God. It's our voice to God. And in that then, in that me experience, um, the psalmist will, the psalmists, plural, will um, rage and provide anguish and call down curses. I don't know if you remember, it's like, I hope my enemies melt like slugs on the road, right? Like they're just so mad and things that, you know, good Christians aren't supposed to say that about our enemies. Um, and here the psalmist, is, it's like to a tune, you know, we can sing these songs. Um, and in the Psalms, we find that people who love God are also at the same time accusing God of abandonment, of murder, of falling asleep on the job. They try to bribe God. They tell God to go away. And they give voice to the very unchristian prayers regarding enemies, hoping that terrible things will happen to them and even to their children. And for any one of us who have ever tried to like pray the Psalms or go through Psalms, you'll find yourselves very quickly with words in your mouth that you're like, I'm not I'm not sure that this is the thing that I want to be saying today. And I think what's so beautiful about this as part of our wisdom tradition is that the psalmist give voice to the full emotional human experience and that all of that is okay. And we talked about how the psalms enable us to bring into our conversation with God the feelings and thoughts that most of us think we need to get rid of before we come to God. That laments and the shocking part of the psalms don't sanctify what's shameful, for example, the desire to kill our enemies, but they teach us that change can happen to our hearts and we can be transformed when we are in the presence of God. And I think what I love most about this is that God is okay, in fact, provides important, you know, liturgical space for honesty and authenticity. That real relationships can't come into being when we don't have an honest conversation with one another, right? We're not having, if I'm hiding huge bits of my rage and my anger with you, this is not an honest, authentic relationship. But the psalmist shows up and goes, you can tell all that stuff to God. God can handle it. In fact, God can handle it so much. We're going to have it as poetry in the middle and a song in the middle of our liturgy um, as we would go up to God, that all of that is okay. Because we're people of the resurrection, as followers of Jesus, we often think that in order to be a good Christian, we shouldn't have doubt or anger or give voice to our most vengeful thoughts. But the problem with traditional notions of prayer is that we cannot have an intimate relationship with someone in whom we cannot speak honestly. So we talked about all of that with the Psalms. We can bring everything to God. It's not a glossy picture. The Bible's relentlessly realistic about the world and our situation against it. And I think that the Psalms guard us against the temptation to have ideas about God, abstracted from an ongoing relationship with God. 
right? It's okay for all of us to sit around and pontificate. I think God is like this. I think God does this. I think this is what happens. But absent from an actual relationship with God, what does all that mean? But the psalmist gives voice. And then the psalms also protect us from religious notions that have been purified from the ups and downs of life. So we concluded that series by saying that when we pray the psalms, whether it's praises or laments or assent, that the world itself does not become safer, things don't get easier, but our place in the world, our movement in the world becomes more secure because we can be honest with our maker. We can be honest with our creator and with our community and say, I'm not okay right now and I'm very angry right now, or I'm super happy and joy-filled and really excited about everything that's happening and I can bring all of that together. Um, to my maker. After that, we jumped into the book of Proverbs. You remember Proverbs is like this really fun collection of sayings that sometimes are a little bit odd or don't seem applicable today, uh, but are very, very wise. And we talked about how the authors of the book of Proverbs are concerned with the same things that we worry about today, how to avoid quarrels, what to tell your kids about sex, about God, about Torah, about money, about work, about friendship. And that primarily the sages in the book of Proverbs are concerned with the art of living well with others, with ourselves, and with God. And so it's really sort of like a curriculum for a lifelong living program. So while some of the words in Proverbs might feel a little bit removed, much of it is very, very wise. And if we were to simply do some of these things, the world would be a much better place. So we talked also then in our book of Proverbs about how, this is Ellen Davis's quote, it's a book for unexceptional people trying to live wisely and faithfully in the generally undramatic circumstance of daily life on the days when water does not pour forth out of rocks and angels do not come to lunch. And I think that's really helpful, right? Because a lot of us are always trying to have those unique mountaintop experiences. The book of Proverbs, like, here's what you do between the very large gaps of those experiences. Here's how we live. The message that I gave was a reminder that, um, or at least my exhortation to us was, Proverbs can be seen sometimes as very simple axiomatic statements about truth. So do this and then you will have wisdom. And um, when you run into Proverbs and, and all of the wisdom literature and you find things that are contradictory or they don't make sense or they don't seem to align, or one proverb will say this and the line right after it says the absolute opposite of it. And you're <laughs> like, I'm a little now confused. Which axiom am I supposed to obey? That is actually the beginning of wisdom. The beginning of wisdom is for you to not just simply shut off your brain and do what the passage tells you. The axiom, the proverb, the teaching there is actually a prompt for you to actually engage and think. It's not a teaching that says to you, I have the wisdom, just do this and now you will be wise. It is, here is a fundamental principle about life, a truth. Now you have to figure out does this actually apply to you or does it not apply? And in what circumstances, in what situations? The Proverbs itself are simply a prompt for you to actually think. And so I've grown up in a tradition where the Bible said it, that's it. That's the end of story. You don't have to think about it anymore. And there's a fundamental reputation that many of us have where you're supposed to just check your brains at the door and just do whatever God tells you to do in said text. And these texts don't give you <laughs> right. any leniency for that whatsoever. They actually require you to be thoughtful and to engage rather than shut off your brain 
and say, well, God said it. So. And I don't know why I did that accent when I said that, so my, my apologies for that. So. Um, also, in the book of, of Proverbs, we talk about how wisdom is personified and how oftentimes in our world, when we think of somebody wise, we think of somebody old and male and with a very, very huge beard, right? That that is our idea of wisdom, whether it's Gandalf or some other sort of um, aspect. But in the book of Proverbs, wisdom is personified as a woman. And how wonderfully beautiful that is in our biblical text and in our narrative to have the story of wisdom being fully brought out in the feminine. And it says here that whoever finds me in Proverbs 8.35, whoever finds me, which is personified wisdom, finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. So then that kind of led us to the end of Proverbs 31. When we, Proverbs in chapter 31, we talk about Eshet Chayil. And I think if you remember, I, I mentioned that I had asked Rabbi Ari, how do you translate Eshet Chayil? There's different options. He's like, amazing woman. Like, that's it. Like, just an amazing woman or a woman of valor. And somebody else said that they would translate it like just how David had the mighty men of David, that these would be the mighty women of valor. And that we often accuse the Hebrew authors of our Bible and the Greek authors of our Bible, of our New Testament, of misogynistic bias. But here they don't flinch from ascribing to a woman the same title given to military heroes throughout the Old Testament. We talked about the gift that it is to see wisdom personified as feminine um, in our story and women to be held up. Um, as important and strong and central to the life of the community that they are in. In this passage, too, then we also talked about how overwhelmingly wisdom is defined as we talk about Solomon and the Proverbs of Solomon, that wisdom is defined as learning. It's This is the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for learning about wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for gaining instruction in wise dealing, righteousness, justice, and equity. That wisdom meant people were being treated well. Wisdom meant people were being treated fairly. That there was righteousness, that there was justice and equity. And oftentimes we think of wisdom as a commodity. I can gain some specialized knowledge and then that specialized knowledge can make me more powerful, successful, rich, influential in my community. But here we see in Proverbs that wisdom is defined as that which is good for gaining instruction and wise dealing, righteousness, justice, and equity. And we see that in ancient Israel was not interested in any form of knowledge abstracted from the concrete problem of how shall we then live in kindness and fidelity with our neighbors, with that righteousness, justice, and equity, and humility, and faithfulness in the presence of God. Egypt was known for pursuing, you know, medical techniques or architecture, and the Greco-Roman community was pursuing all of these deep philosophical thoughts. And, and the pursuit of those technologies and those art forms is beautiful. But Israel is pursuing wisdom for the sake of treating one another well. And how deeply beautiful and central and core that is to our text. It's not enough to be wise absent from the ethics of Proverbs. It's not enough just to have knowledge for knowledge's sake alone. You must put this to good work for treating one another well. One of the images that is used actually in this passage is wisdom as a creative force rather than, as Danielle was mentioning, like a, a thing that you get to have. In some Jewish traditions, wisdom was actually there before the creation of the world. Wisdom was there in, as the fundamental element that caused the creation of the world. So whatever you think about Genesis, however you think about 
God turning chaos and the waters and the dark and the deep into this beautiful creation that has order and purpose and meaning and life to it, whatever caused that to be, that's what is known as wisdom. And so that very concept and idea of wisdom as something as a creative force that turns chaos into beauty and order and purpose is this very idea and concept of turning that which is unjust into just, that which is um, oppressive into that which is righteousness, that which is equal. So thinking about wisdom in those particular terms is not some esoteric knowledge that you get to have about God, but about understanding exactly how this world works. And if I'm going to get slightly edgy here for a second. I'm in conversation with my small group about capitalism, and I know that there's a lot of young people around that are really asking some deep philosophical economic questions about the merits and the validity of cap. Can I say this out loud? And one of the ways in which I see this playing out, like if I can put this in real practical terms, one conception of wisdom is to figure out how the capitalist society works and to use that mechanism in order to gain, to figure out oh, I can do this, I can do this, and this is how I can now get to X particular position. If we understand biblical wisdom as a question of what is right and what is just and what is true and a creative act to turn chaos into order, this kind of wisdom is going to ask the question, is capitalism even wise itself? The very fundamental thing that we are operating on is creating incredible disparity, incredible poverty, incredible, you know, separation between classes, maybe that thing itself needs to be questioned. Now, I'm not saying I'm doing that. I'm just saying that. <laughs> it's just one of, the, one of the ways to apply this said idea. Okay, so then we jumped into Ecclesiastes, which, you know, is meaningless. Um, and that was some wonderful teaching from Omer and Tom and Sidney as well. And then we... Ended last week concluding with Song of Songs. And we talked about how there's some glimpses from the garden there that we have this beautiful book where the woman speaks first and the woman speaks last and the woman speaks most often. And the woman is often characterized in like strong military terms, you know, Pharaoh's mare into causing the chaos with Pharaoh's chariots or her neck is as strong as the Tower of David. And we talked often, we also talked about how right in the middle of this beautiful song that the woman says that her, her, she's talking about some man, she says, your desire, I belong to my lover and his desire, his tuka is for me. His teshukah is for me. The Song of Songs from 710. And this word is only used two other times in our Bible, and the other two times are in Genesis. And it's when after the sneaky snake and they eat the fruit, and now God says, okay, the consequences of your disobedience is that your husband will rule over you, but your teshukah will be for him. And now we have this reversal here where we have this woman who says that his desire is for her. So we talked about we're getting these glimpses of God setting things to right in the garden. And that also, if you wanted to take an, an additional view of this as not just the song between these two lovers, you can also see that this, as the woman says she's pursuing her lover, she's looking for him, she's seeking after him, that this is a term that's also found in Exodus 33, really seeking after God. And so the song enables us to feel what it's like to seek God with the whole soul and 
it reminds us that God is not, after all, an easy catch. She says, I grabbed him and would not let him go. Whether she's talking about romantic love in her life, or whether, which is what she's talking about, or whether we want to look at it, as Rabbi Akiva said, as the Song of Songs being this holy of holies that talks us about this beautiful, intimate love with God, that we are going to see in this that love is a perpetual pursuit that God is a perpetual pursuit and that this is a journey, not a destination and that we can seek God and not let go. So that's the, pretty much the conclusion of our wisdom series. Got wisdom? No, no. We're all done now, right? You learned everything you needed to know about all that we needed to know about wisdom, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple things that I wanted to really emphasize and hope that you are taking away. Number one, and Danielle mentioned this earlier, you are not alone. You are not alone. Uh, Not only do you need a community that is wide, you also need a community that is deep. You have this community here and you have friends and you have family, you have all those kind of connections and you need to know that you're not alone here. Um, But you also need to know that you're not alone throughout the deep history, the, the deep length of history. And that the struggles that we're often dealing with here, the socio-political, economic challenges that we're facing, you also need to know that our ancestors have been dealing with this as well. And they've left us trails of intimate wisdom and understanding that we can draw from. Not only actual pieces of wisdom and insight, but also a collective community. Oh, they were there too, in a different time and in a different place. I am not alone. This is not new. There is nothing new under the sun. Every time there's a big news report about some sort of political thing happening in America, sure, that's news. It makes the headline. It is not new. Are there corrupt politicians? Kel Supreze. These people have been around for a long time. Are there evil people prospering and good people that are not prospering? And we find that abhorrent? Yes, congratulations. Kel Surprise, what a surprise. This has been happening, unfortunately, for a long time. And that kind of perspective, I think, is very helpful for us to understand, A, that we're not alone, um, and B, whatever your anguish, whatever your emotional, I love what Daniel said, it's like the fullness of your emotional humanity can be brought to bear in the context of this faith tradition. Nothing, you don't have to hide anything. I, I think... Many of us are um, tired, exhausted, and or exasperated about compartmentalized expressions of faith. When you're in one particular context, you have to be joyful and praising and worshiping all the time and blessing God for everything all the time. And then in some particular context, it's just all morose and lamentations all the time, the lamentations of the women. But sometimes you're having to do that all the time. And somebody got that. That's a Conan uh, Barbarian joke. Anyway. (laughs) Um, but then there are those communities where you need to know that you can be both and all the time at any time. And I hope that you understand that you're not alone in that. So wherever you might happen to be, that you can be that fully and completely. You, you want to worship Psalm 148, 49, 50. Praise the Lord, all ye heavens of the earth, all the seas, all the mountains, all the trees, all the animals. Let's praise. Are you feeling worshipful? You can bring that. Are you really ticked off? Psalm 13. Why is it that I'm down in this pit and my boss is making it and I'm just being... You can bring that too. So you have that. 
So number one, you're not alone, and the fullness of yourself can be brought. Number two, and this is, I don't know, I'm not really quite sure how to say this well, but I alluded to it earlier. Wisdom challenges everything that you thought you knew. It is, in many ways, an epistemological challenge to you, an upending of what you thought was true, was right, what you know. And that, my friends, is a good thing. And that can go in any direction. If you happen to be on the liberal end or the conservative end, if you happen to be on the religious end or the secular end, wherever you might happen to be in an ideological or philosophical perspective, this kind of literature, this kind of wisdom upends that. You think you know that there is no God? Wisdom upends that. You think that you know there is a God and this is exactly how God is and here are all of the arguments apologetically for how God, how you know that God exists, wisdom upends that. You think all those people over there who are conservative, who vote a particular way, are clearly evil and ignorant and stupid? Wisdom upends that. You think all those liberals and progressives who are, who are trying to take away and talking about all these things in our schools and they're voting a particular way, those are the idiots? Wisdom upends that. Whatever you think you might happen to know, wisdom challenges you. And one of the things that I've always um, struggled with and wrestled with, and I'm not quite sure, I'm still trying to figure out how to articulate this. People find churches and look for churches and religious institutions that agree with what it is that they already agree with. Hmm. Um, we talked about this several years ago when we, we did our Why Jesus series about, you know, you're sorting. You're like, this church believes this. this I know some of you, and I'm not calling anybody out because I'm so glad you're here. Some people search for a church that has this. Spark fit it. Congratulations, you're here. I'm so glad you're here. Stay. Please stay. Please stay. I'm just... Um, but it would be a disservice for us and honestly a disservice to the long tradition of this faith to just simply affirm what you already think you know that you believe. And we do these series and we do these teachings because for me... I don't want to just simply hold on to what I think is true. I actually want to be upended. I actually want to be challenged. I want to be stretched beyond what I think I thought I knew might happen to be true. Because I can see through my past and my history, those moments where I clearly knew women should not be in leadership. They should not be in ministry. Second Timothy is very clear about this, people. And then a cute blonde comes along and completely upends what I think I know. And when that upending happens, <laughs> there is a gift on the other side. I, will, I cannot tell you how much I'm I sell. I'm responsible for your slippery You're responsible. Slope. <laughs> you are responsible for my heresy. The number, the number of you that have come to us regarding your ethical or moral beliefs that your previous church taught you or that you grew up on. And then all of a sudden... Someone in your family comes out to you, and then all of that now needs to be challenged. And the thing that you thought you knew turned out not to be true. That's wisdom. The thing that you thought you knew to be true is upended. And I cannot tell you how blessed and honored I am to be in community and in the presence of people who will then give the testimony. And you need to go back into the archives and listen to these testimonies because they're incredible. Who will say... I thought I knew God when everything was certain. And as soon as that was upended, I never 
never realized the kind of love and mercy and compassion this God has when I finally let go of what I thought I believed. How much more expansive and wide and capacious and open my heart now is. And how this thing that I thought I knew all of a sudden wasn't true. And my mind became much broader and now accepting. And now I can see, I can see just how big God's love is. Because before, God's love fit here. And now, because it was upended, it fits here. This is what wisdom does. This is why you need to read Ecclesiastes. Meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. It's, all, it's just a vapor. It's here and it's gone. Why you need to read Job and his friends. Like, well, maybe it was this sin. Maybe it was that sin. Maybe it was you. Maybe, clearly, Job, you're hiding something. You're, there's something in your closet, right? You need to read these texts and engage with a community who's willing to say what you think you might know to be true may not actually be true. And guess what? On the other side of that epistemological wall is joy and an openness. So anyway, that was my sermon. Thank you. And, and I think we've been talking about this for a long time at Spark, right? That, that to, to decide that you already know exactly and everything there is to know about God means that you don't yet know God. God is bigger than our understanding and our knowledge of God. That to decide that we're only going to worship the God of our own understanding is actually idol worship. That we have to come with humility to say, I see, as the Apostle Paul says, I see through a glass dimly. I don't yet know everything. It doesn't mean that there aren't some things that we do know. And this is also found in the wisdom literature. But it's okay to say, I don't know sometimes about lots of other things too. So any do you have questions? any questions? There's a question. Yes. Ooh. How is wisdom... Of God. Of Yahweh, reflective of Yahweh, different from other sources of wisdom? Oh, my gosh. Oh, geez. That's a fantastic question. Because there are other pieces of ancient literature that we have that clearly have um, a, a very similar concept of wisdom and understanding. Um, I'll, I'll put it here. The problem with some of those ancient pieces of wisdom is that they're hyper-mythological. And what I mean by that is this. There's always an appeal to some sort of supernatural realm. And we actually still do this within Christian circles. One of the things that I have come to understand about the Christian faith, pulling in from the Jewish tradition, is the demythologizing of our principles. And this is the thing that kind of irritates me a little bit about some expressions that I see. It's like, well, just constantly reach up to the heavens. Just appeal to God. And there's this... If you do certain things right, if you pray in a certain way, if you appeal to God in a certain way, then you will find the secret pathway to spiritual knowledge and understanding. That's Gnosticism. That's a secret knowledge. That's a secret wisdom. That's a mythological appeal. You are hyper-mythologizing your understanding. And what these texts do, what's brilliant is that they're bringing the ancient mythological understanding down to earth. You have a brain. You have eyes. Can't you see? What happened to your fields? Did you see what happened to your goat? How many babies did your goat have? You know, there's a very earthy understanding that you have the ability, because you bear the image and likeness of God, to understand how this world works. Now go out into the world and understand it. Don't just appeal to a mythology. So that's one of the main movements that I've seen, and we could go through all sorts of texts to kind of see that. But um, it is interesting to me 
that there are strains of Christianity that still appeal to the mythological, that still appeal to a, a hyper um, supernatural realm. And if you can get to the supernatural, then you've got it. And all of you who don't see it, well, then you're somehow missing. That, that was a heresy that was cast out of the church many years ago. Demythologized wisdom. You have a brain. You have an understanding. Sorry. And I would just note that uh, as we mentioned, we mentioned this in our, one of our talks, that Israel was interested in wisdom specifically for the sake of righteousness, justice, and equity. Yes. And so Augustine of Hippo, an early church father, said he made a distinction between sapientia and scientia, terms that may be best rendered as wisdom and abstract knowledge. So he said, of sapientia, Augustine said, true wisdom is such that no evil use can ever be made of it. Scientia is not inherently evil, but it's problematic in that abstract knowledge has no intrinsic relationship with goodness. So I would argue that in the ancient Israelite tradition, in the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Bible, the inherent it to our wisdom is that it is good for the world, that it is good for others amongst us, that it does good in the world, and it is not selfish, and it is not abstract from those ethics. But scientia, the danger of it is that it can be easily misdirected to selfish and short-sighted ends right? So we might be able to say, hey, I know a great way to produce a lot of energy in the world, and it's okay if it destroys the world while it happens. That is knowledge that is abstracted from the inherent concerns of wisdom and goodness and justice and equity. So I would argue that that is a distinction between Israelite Hebrew thinking, Christian text thinking about wisdom being connected to goodness and doing good in the world as opposed to just wisdom and for the sake of knowledge that puffs up, as, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8. That abstracted from love and goodness and faithfulness, mercy and forgiveness, knowledge just puffs up. Any other questions? Yes. Okay, I'll, I'll repeat the question. You tell me if I got it right. If we're in humility acknowledging the fact that there's always going to be more to know, and that we will always need some sort of a bit of doubt to say, Did, do I really understand this correctly? Because I want to be able to have humility to say there's always more to know. I can only understand as much as I can, right? How do we ever arrive to the point of like, but this I know to be true. And is there an absolute truth, right? And do I ever arrive there? How are we not all doubting Thomases all the time, right? That's a great, it's a great question. I'm, I'm going to say, um, welcome to human experience. <laughs> so, um, I will tell you that there are things in my, I'm just talking about myself personally. There are things in my life that I've decided that I know it in my knower. Um, there is an old nun who called it like the God of the belly button. Um, like she just knew deep in her soul that God was good and that God was loving and that God loved her, and that God wanted her to love others, right? So I think at some point, for me personally, there is maybe an experience in my life that's happened that makes me, for example, um, have had an experience with Jesus that makes me say, this I know to be true. But I would also be a terrible pastor if I didn't say to you that after almost 30 years of pastoring, um, that there aren't days where I go, do I know it to be true? Is it real? 
And I think that the point of the, what the whole of what's included in our canon, in our scriptures, is that it is okay. I believe God is big enough to handle that question, to handle that doubt, and to say, I don't know today. And Rachel Held Evans, if anybody read Rachel Held Evans of Blessed Memory, she used to say, on the days when I believe this is true, this is how I'm living. And I think there's some nice humility in that. To that end, here's what I would love to do. Thank you so much for your question. And I know all of us actually are going to be wrestling with that. And this would be the, it's a journey, not a destination conversation. Um, And I bet there's a lot of really incredible wisdom here as we all wrestle with that. So the good news is we have dinner coming. We have a beautiful vegetarian, climate-friendly dinner from Sultana's on its way. And so we're going to close in communion. And I would love it if as we gathered around, we continue to wrestle like that. And for those of you who want to create more opportunities and space for this kind of conversation, we have a beautiful space you can book between Monday to Thursdays that's available for you at any time. And also, I have open office hours, and I would love love to continue the conversation too. Thank you guys so much. We're going to turn our hearts now towards our time of communion um, when this is what we know to be true. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table.